Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle say 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. 
Wow. Why is Donald Trump messing with the Fed? I can tell you why. He's concerned that the economy is going to like go back to normal and he wants it to be in hyperdrive. We're seeing this explosion, this bubble going on, and he doesn't want it to stop. He's afraid of losing elections and being known as Herbert Hoover. And I have a feeling he's going to do both, both in 2018 and 2020, but we'll see. We'll discuss that with Professor Richard Wolf. In the meantime, there's a lot in the news and a lot going on. There's a great post over at Democratic Underground by Fritz67. Uh, it's titled, More Things You Have to Believe to Be a Republican Today, the Dog Days of Summer Edition. It's a, it's a theme that has been running on DU for years, things that you have to believe to be a Republican. And Fritz67 did a great list today. Uh, valid for Hitler comparisons, if you're a Republican, it's okay to compare uh, Barack Obama with Adolf Hitler, if you're talking about health care for everybody. After all, Hitler did that. You know, it's a Nazi thing. Actually, universal health care in Germany was started in the 1880s. I believe it was the Bismarck administration, but whatever. Our first black president trying to give everybody health care, that's Hitler. But a bombastic bigot, and this is reading his text, a bombastic bigot with a bad haircut who wants to stop immigration, persecute believers of a religious minority, torture people, demand loyalty oaths, punish those who criticize him, build internment camps for children, and refer to other human beings as animals and dogs. No, no, you can't compare that with Hitler. Can't do that. Not a chance. No way. You blast the patriotism of football players who kneel during the national anthem in protest, by the way of police killings of unarmed black men, but you never bother to learn the words to God bless America. You think that Canada is a greater national security threat than North Korea. Why? Well, because back in the war of 1812, you know, the United Kingdom coming through Canada burned down the White House. Actually, they weren't entirely coming through Canada. Putin and Kim Jong-un are our best buds and Canada, France, Germany, and the UK are our enemies, more or less. The best way to stop gun violence is not to put any new gun laws on the books. Right. Letting the military cover up water contamination in military bases that is actually poisoning enlisted people and their families. And letting them get ripped off by payday lenders and car dealers who position their stuff literally right outside military bases all over the United States, specifically so they can rip off the troops. That's all fine, says Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney is working really hard to keep the profits flowing in these multi-billion dollar industries that basically just rip off the working poor, which tragically are our soldiers now. And that's all just fine. That's all just fine. If you're a Republican, you know, supporting the troops means introducing them to payday lenders and poisoning their water. But stuff that doesn't upset you, well, putting children in cages that, you know, if you're a Republican, you have to believe that putting kids in cages is just a fine thing. He points out, he or she, I, I don't know who Fritz is, but points out that uh, manufacturing your campaign flags in China, yeah, they are. They're, they're flags and they're hats and a lot of the campaign paraphernalia that you get or you can buy over at uh, Donald Trump's website, his campaign website, where they're um, literally every day, well, sometimes it's every other day, but on most days, it's every day I'm getting a fundraising request from the Trump campaign. You'll recall back, you know, two years ago, I sent them five bucks to get on their list. And boy, once they've got you, they never let go. Haven't sent up a penny since then, but I'm still getting the solicitations. And where's that money going? It's going to pay for Don Jr.'s legal expenses, among others. 
Right. These are legitimate campaign expenses, aren't they? But in any case, you know, manufacturing your campaign flags in China, that's putting America first, right? This is a funny one. He says, people with Lipton teabags tied to their hats holding up signs accusing the then sitting president, that would be Obama, of being a secret Kenyan in league with terrorists. That's a good thing. Educating children? No, that's a bad thing. You think Omarosa Manigault Newman is a low-life reality show star who is obviously unqualified for government position, but you support Donald Trump, right? That's, you know. John Dean is the real Watergate villain. And when people try to uh, tell the FCC that they're in favor of net neutrality, that's called hacking the FCC. These are some of the things you would have to believe to be a Republican today. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani, the Washington Post has finally come out with this. The headline, Rudy Giuliani's Pinocchio-laden interview on NBC's Meet the Press. And a couple of the points that they make, we had two different people call into the program yesterday. And I, I frankly, I don't know if the Republican Party is paying people to call into the show, if these are interns at right-wing think tanks, or these are merely people. And I think this is probably most likely because people become true believers, you know, and they, they become really enthusiastic when they believe something. And so these are really pathetic suckers who have been listening to right-wing hate radio or watching Fox so-called news, and they actually believed Rudy Giuliani when he said, well, you know, that meeting in Trump Tower, nobody knew that those people were Russians. Natalia Veselnitskaya, who knew? I mean, he literally was saying that on Meet the Press, lying through his teeth. I mean, just look at the actual documents. This is from the, the email that was sent to Trump Jr., by Rob Goldstone, representing a Russian oligarch. This is June 3rd, 2016. And I quote, the Crown Prosecutor of Russia met with his father Aras, he's talking about this oligarch who's a friend of Trump's, his father Aras this morning, and in their meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. This is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. 20 minutes later, Trump Jr. replied, if it's what you say, I love it. Now, Giuliani says, then goes on to say, well, you know, if, if a foreign government came and offered any other candidate dirt on their opponent, they would take it in a heartbeat. Not so fast. The Mitt Romney campaign, Stuart Stevens was the chief strategist for the Mitt Romney campaign back in 2012 when he ran against Obama. And this is from this piece in the Washington Post. Stevens pointed to an incident during the 2000 campaign when he's part of Bush's media team as the appropriate response of a campaign. The Bush campaign held a, had a tightly held briefing book to prep Bush for his debates with Al Gore, the Democratic nominee. They said there were only seven or eight debate books, each with a specific typo on the opening page, so a leak could be traced. Someone associated with the campaign the Bush campaign, anonymously shipped a copy of the 120-page book, along with a 60-minute videotape of mock debate sessions, to Tom Downey, a Long Island congressman who was assisting Al Gore with the uh, debates, and, and he was playing Bush in the mock debates. Downey said he quickly realized that the what the materials were and contacted a lawyer who called the FBI so they could take possession of the materials. Downey then recused himself from any further debate prep, a move that Stevens said probably hurt the Gore campaign because Downey was so central to the preparation. And then the person who supplied the information, this was a woman who worked for Mark McKinnon, was eventually charged and sentenced to a year in jail for sending that debate prep information to Al Gore's campaign. 
Stephen says it's not even a close call how a campaign should react. You call the FBI. But instead, Trump Jr. gets an email a couple days later saying, Emin, the pop star, asked that I schedule a meeting with you and the Russian government attorney who is flying over from Moscow this Thursday. You recall two of our callers yesterday said, oh, he had no idea it was a government attorney. He didn't even know she was a Russian. Right. The first email on June 3rd said Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. And then the one on the 8th said that they wanted to move the scheduled meeting by an hour because, quote, the Russian attorney is in court until 3 o'clock. And, of course, she brought an interpreter. Oh, we didn't know she was a Russian. Really? I mean, this is pretty extraordinary. Everything that's going on here, the stuff you have to believe to be a Republican. But it's not that hard to believe when you've got an entire network, a television network, Fox News, owned by a billionaire oligarch, Rupert Murdoch, dedicated to promoting the message that billionaire oligarchs are good for America. They should be running America. We should do away with our pollution rules so the billion oligarchs can make more money. You know, all this kind of stuff. How can people resist this, really? This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, you got just average, you know, Joe Schmoes watching TV thinking, oh, hey, you know, she's cute, she's blonde, she must be telling the truth, right? Terry in Palm Coast, Florida. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, what's up? Um, I was wondering, how does one respond to friends' defense and support of Trump because they feel he has seemingly improved their jobs and ability to get jobs and the benefits and keeping gas prices low? It seems to me like some specious temporary benefit, quote-unquote, that they are believing in. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think, A, Trump is not keeping gas prices low. They've been going up and down. The price of oil has been fluctuating between 50 and 90 bucks a, a barrel for, for years, actually. Um, right. And and the uh, and worker pay has been down ever since Reagan's first tax cuts, and it's down now. In fact, workers right now are doing two-tenths of, they're getting two-tenths of a percent less pay than they were when Trump came into office. I mean, it's a, it's a non-argument. Plus, if you take out part-time jobs and temp work, there's actually, I mean, you know, that's where over 90% of the job growth has been in part-time and temp work, which doesn't pay benefits and doesn't pay well. That's where it's growing. Is that really the economy you want? What happened to good union jobs? Trump is totally opposed to good union jobs. In fact, Trump fought unionization in his own hotel in Las Vegas. Yep, yep. So well, I would think I, I would think that would be I'm fairly easy to knock down. I just say, are you friggin' kidding me? I mean, this is this is this is the the, the, the most thickly spread BS I've I've heard in years. That's where I would go with it. Terry, I, I want to move along, but thank you for the call. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington, listen KBCS. Hey Teresa, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, I just wanted to point out um, when you when you were talking about socialism yesterday, it was a great little rant you did. But I would have liked you to had added in the United States military because it's yes. basically, um, you know, a socialist institution, probably the largest on the planet. <laughs> well, and I think it's one of the reasons why people in the military are more enthusiastic about single payer health care. I say to people that say they don't like socialism, of course, I, I say, well, you know, I mean, just at tongue in cheek, you don't support the troops then. Right. Or the police and the fire department. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are clearly socialist institutions and have been from the, from the founding of our republic for all practical purposes. Don't support libraries. Don't support public roads. Water and septic systems owned by cities. Electric systems. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Right. Yes, yes. And I, I have one other, a new word for you. It's called pleonexia. Have you, are you familiar with that word? Pleonexia? No, I've never it's, heard of it. 
I got it out of Michael Hudson's book, and it is a it is a word for insatiable greed. Really? It's actually, I guess it's actually, it's a Greek word, and I, I think it's actually like a, like you say, a mental health kind of diagnosis. Huh. Pleonexia. Is that like the Pleiades? I mean, uh, well, let's see. It's spelled P-L-E-O-N-E-X-I-A. Pleonexia. One, huh. one definition said the insatiable desire to have what rightfully belongs to others. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say our billionaire class has a bad case of it. <laughs> Teresa, thank you for the call. Thanks, Tom. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. This is bizarre. This is uh, from InTheseTimes.com. The, with little public attention, Donald Trump used his August 13th signing statement for the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. And by the way, let me just give you a little background on this. When the Constitution was being written, the founders were concerned that a standing army during times of peace would get up to mischief, would be up to no good. And in fact, they had seen country after country after country in Europe that had been taken down by military coups, by a standing army saying, okay, that's it, we're going to take out the president, or we're going to take out the government, or we're going to take over the government. It's a, it's a long story that goes all the way back to Roman times. And so there was this debate at the Constitutional Convention in a fairly long debate back in September of 1787 about whether or not there should be a ban on a standing army during times of war. And in part, the Second Amendment came out of that debate. Instead of having a federal standing army, we would have individual state militias, which the president could mobilize during time of war, during a time of crisis. That was the idea. And to really put that into, into, into the Constitution, 
The only place in the Constitution where the tax raising and spending authority of Congress is time limited. The only place in the Constitution that that happens, where they say to Congress, where the Constitution, the founders said to Congress, you cannot raise taxes and you cannot spend money for more than two years. The only place that exists in the Constitution, or any time period, but it's two years in the Constitution in this case, is with regard to funding for the military. You can fund the Navy as long as you want, because everybody believed that we needed to protect our borders. But the Army and all the things that have come since the Army, which would be the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, those things, in order to be funded, have to be funded every two years. Every two years, Congress has to sit down and say, do we still want there to be a standing army? Or do we want to go with all these state militias? And that's why the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the funding of the Army that happens every two years, and it has to happen, the Constitution literally shuts down the Pentagon. That's why that is must-pass legislation. It was $716 billion this year going to the Pentagon, the single largest expense in our government, to fight wars all over the world and maintain more than 700 military bases around the world. But when Trump signed this, he overrode with a signing statement provisions aimed at minimizing civilian deaths in the U.S.-Saudi war on Yemen. This is, this is mind-boggling. This move, uh, the, the article in these Times notes, this move came just days after the Saudi-led coalition struck a school bus with the U.S.-supplied and manufactured bomb, killing 54 people, 44 of them children. The signing statement, they noticed the latest evidence that after three years and tens of thousands of human beings killed non-combatants, the Trump administration has no intention of curbing its role in this bloody war. The United States supplies arms, intelligence, and aerial refueling to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates warplanes and gives political cover to the war. In one fell swoop, Trump dismissed roughly 50 different laws that are included in the, in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, claiming that they constitutionally, unconstitutionally stepped on his constitutional, on his executive authority. For example, Section 1290, which says that before we can authorize the, the refueling of warplanes, the Secretary of State has to certify that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are minimizing harm to civilians. Trump just said, no, they don't have to do that. 50 different laws Trump struck down. This is insane. On the line with us is our old friend, Professor Richard Wolf, and democracyatwork.info is his website. He is the co-founder of Democracy at Work, an economist, an author. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. It is always great having you. Always learn from you. And I'm curious, uh, Donald Trump has been going after the Fed. This is something that traditionally presidents don't do. Long after Lyndon Johnson died, we learned that uh, I believe his Fed chief's name was Miller. And he had had this guy into the White House and he was concerned that interest rates were going up and he didn't want that happening. Literally grabbed him by the shirt collar, slammed him up against the wall, lifted him off his tippy toes and threatened him. And Miller still said, screw you to LBJ or words to that effect, and went ahead and raised interest rates. Trump seems to be trying to threaten the current Fed chief that he himself appointed. And I'm wondering what this means. What, where can he go with this? What kind of damage can this do? Why does Trump even care? And how, in all probability, uh, will the Fed respond? I mean, I noticed today, after this reporting went out last night about this, 
that today that uh, foreign currencies are up, the dollar's down, gold is up, all things that would tend to indicate that they expect that the Fed is going to back down in the face of Trump, but maybe not. I, you t what do you think about all this? It begins with trying to understand the problem the Fed has and why it is now beginning to raise interest rates, because at base, that's the issue. And the reason for that is simple. Starting in 2000, when the dot-com bubble burst, and then again in 2008, when the mortgage crisis took us over the edge, the response of the Federal Reserve in the United States, and indeed of central banks around the world, was not to get us out of this capitalist crash by helping the people at the bottom, for example, with a government employment program or a mass distribution of helping the poor, etc., etc., but instead by what's called monetary policy. And the central component of monetary policy is to reduce interest rates to virtually zero, which was done. Indeed, in some cases, the interest rates went below zero. And this is, this is to flood the system with, with uh, cheap money, right? Exactly. To make it so cheap to borrow money that every bank would borrow from the government who prints it. And hopefully, that's what they hoped, businesses would borrow to expand and consumers would borrow to spend. So the whole thing was premised on flooding the economy with money and boosting it. The problem, of course, when you do that is that at some point, all of that extra money may come back and start to be nervous about holding people who have it, nervous about holding money, because if prices start to go up, then the value of any money you hold correspondingly goes down. So the great fear of this way of dealing with capitalist instability by pumping money in, will come back to haunt you by producing an inflation. The fear is that once that starts, it's very hard to control. Once people see prices rising, they will run to unload their money into something more secure, and that, of course, will make the problem worse. So what government central banks like the Fed have to do sooner or later is try to bring that money back out of the economy, raise interest rates. That's how you do that, because that means banks won't borrow from the government and businesses won't borrow from banks. And the whole money creation uh, machine goes into reverse as a way to do that to prevent the inflation from getting underway that becomes so hard to control. That's what the Federal Reserve decided over the last year and a half to do slowly, modestly raise interest rates so as to keep this monster of inflation that's a serious problem given how much money has been pumped into the economy, not just by the United States, but by central banks in Europe, by the Japanese, and so on. And so that's what the Fed was doing before he appointed Mr. Powell, that is, uh, President Trump appointed Powell, and since he appointed him, because there's a pretty strong consensus on doing this, the only disagreements in the Fed are how big the upward movement should be, how fast it should occur, things like that. Mm -hmm. For the president to step in is simple politics. When you raise interest rates, you slow down the economy. That's what the whole point of it is. And he doesn't want the economy to be slowed down before the November elections. 
There's nothing there that's mysterious. There's nothing there that, that anyone has to puzzle over. This is a direct intervention by the president loudly, as he does everything, in order to push the political risk of losing the House or the Senate uh, to a lower level than it might otherwise have if the Fed does what it's supposed to do. Mr. Trump's political short-term advantage is the Trump card, if you allow me, that he plays over and against what the Federal Reserve, Republicans and Democrats alike, understand it should be doing at this point. But if I'm the chairman of the Fed, I'm looking at the Republican Party and Donald Trump flooding a trillion and a half borrowed dollars into the economy. Uh, granted, uh, over a trillion of it, has, or about a trillion of it, has, has been used for share buybacks. So it's exactly. mostly just fattening the wallet of, of the top 1% or, or less than the top 1%. But still, a trillion and a half dollars. I, I remember when Reagan did this with his tax cuts and jacked the uh, U.S. deficit by almost $2 trillion. And that was back when, when a dollar was worth a hell of a lot more than it is now. And people would say, oh, Reagan's got the economy rolling. And I'm, my response was, you give me a $2 trillion credit card. I can show you what living large looks like. The chairman of the Fed has to be looking at this juicing of the economy and thinking, this is like, you know, a guy who didn't get enough sleep who decides to deal with that, not by taking a nap, but by drinking three quarts of coffee. He's put the economy on steroids. How does this end? You've put the economy on a steroid uh, shot, both in fiscal policy with the tax cut and now with monetary policy as you keep preventing the closing of the money chute going into the economy. But I'm just reminded of the famous remark of King Louis before the French Revolution, après moi le déluge, that is, after me, let the storm come, but as long as I'm in here, I'm going to do anything and everything to keep hold of the power I have, and I'm not going to worry one bit about what happens a month literally afterwards, or let alone a year afterwards, and we're just seeing that uh, being played out. And if Mr. Trump's appointees uh, play two to form, my guess is they'll go along. They may not do no interest rates, but my guess is, and that's what you're seeing in the stock market response, the assumption is the increases will be smaller than they otherwise would have been, there'll be fewer, there'll be bigger spaces between them, they will kind of cut the difference, accommodate Mr. Trump to some degree, but not 100%, so it doesn't look like the Fed is simply caving in the face of it. And maybe that won't be enough for Mr. Trump, and he'll shuffle the Fed Reserve chairman as fast as he's shuffled his uh, cabinet appointees. There's a piece in the Financial Times today pointing out that the longest expansion in, since World War II, and it may be the longest expansion in the history of the United States, but they just take their stats back to World War II, was 113 months, if my memory serves me right. And tomorrow, on Wednesday, we hit 113 months on this expansion. So, you know, the end will come. I mean, this is the cyclical nature of capitalism. When that end comes, whether it's, you know, this week or whether it's, you know, a year from now, and, and you can make an argument for either one, I suppose, but particularly the year from now, because so much money has been poured into the economy. The way that the Fed typically responds to a downturn in the economy is by lowering interest rates, by, by flooding the zone with, with cheap cash. But they can't do that if they don't raise them first. I mean, isn't the normal range of interest rates in the United States typically around 25 to 3.5%? 
Yes, the whole logic of the, of the money management is that you raise the rates when the economy is in good shape, so to speak, and doing reasonably well, so that you can lower it when the economy, as you say, predictably with its cycles, goes down. If you don't raise it in the good time, you've got really no wiggle room when it comes uh, to the bad time. And let me underscore your other point. It's precisely because businesses around the world in the United States and beyond, are very aware of what you said, that we are already long in the tooth of this so-called recovery since 2009 that has left so many Americans out of the recovery. We're already so far into it that businesses are cutting back. There's no point in hiring workers now, expanding capacity to produce, if you're looking at a crash a month from now, a year from now, or two or three years from now. So they bring about the very thing they fear by holding back, but it's the only rational way for them to cope with the likely future that they have to guess about. That's one of the crazinesses of a capitalist system, that the way it makes for rational decision-making brings about the very thing that makes the system unstable in the first place. Wow. So you're expecting uh, more instability coming? and Absolutely. And in that, I, I am sharing a point of view that the financial press is increasingly circulating among people, including people who like Mr. Trump, but whose first loyalty is to the company and the investment program that their livelihoods depend on. Yeah, remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info is his website. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Do I have all that right, Professor? You absolutely do, and thanks for going through it. My pleasure. And thank you for being with us today. And uh, I, I really appreciate the, the clear, cogent, understandable explanation of what's going on with the Fed here. It's, it's good stuff. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book. You can follow Luke at The Courier on Twitter. Luke, uh, welcome back. Thank you very much. So uh, Microsoft says that the Russians are up to no good right now. What's going on? Yeah, this is pretty cool because most of the sort of reporting we've been getting about tempted Russian interference in the forthcoming election have not really been coming first from tech companies. We've had to pry that information out of their hands. In this case, you, you see Microsoft, which has a significant share of the sort of cloud hosting and corporate email marketplace going public with some things they've seen in the last week. What they say is that an elite Russian military intelligence unit, a group of hackers known as Fancy Bear, with ties to the GRU, had been creating in the last week a number of uh, websites, which uh, the URLs were carefully chosen to try and make them appear like they were affiliated with bona fide websites. So in one case, they were, and, and what they did is set up sort of sign-in portals. Uh, this is not all that sophisticated in, in some ways. It's, it's a lot like what people have been getting in their emails for many years, where they'll get something that looks like, I don't know, a FedEx tracking receipt and it says, hey, your package is delayed, you know, punch in your FedEx corporate account code and we'll get that package on to you. Of course, it's not from FedEx. What they've done here is create, let's say, one that is trying to get members of the Senate staff to hand over their credentials. So they created Senate.group 
or in another case, ADFS, which is a Microsoft uh, you know, string of letters which they use for their corporate email accounts, mm-hmm. ADFS-Senate.email. And we don't know if how they were trying to use these or if they were successful in doing this, but they created these portals, tried to get people people sign information, and may well have installed malware or other types of software on those login portals so that even if someone sort of realized partway through that they had been, you know, uh, or that they shouldn't proceed to give any more information, the website could have already installed something on those computers. In another instance, they were not targeting people from the Senate, but two conservative think tanks, which have been quite critical of Russia over the last few years. The Hudson Institute, they uh, built off of the Hudson.org, which is the official URL for that think tank, and did Hudson.org-my-sharepoint.com, again, which is the, the, the kind of the SharePoint is a Microsoft trademark for their corporate email. And the other one, the International Republican Institute, whose members include John McCain, former presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who called Russia the biggest threat facing the United States. Um, and, you know, instead of doing IRI.org, they created my-IRI.org. And hmm. their president of the International Republican Institute has come out and said, look, this is exactly what we believe Russia has been doing for a long time. So get a little food for thought here. I mean, what are they trying to do? Are they, uh, are they trying to dig up information on conservative critics of Russia to be able to maybe reduce their uh, you know, the influence within American society. It's kind of hard to tell, but an interesting technique here that Microsoft has exposed. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's troubling. The uh, IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has, quote, grave concerns over the continuing and further development, end quote, of North Korea's nuclear program. What is going on here? That is a report that is going to be circulated next month to the board of the IAEA. It has, I'm not sure, fallen into the hands of of Reuters and uh, Agence France Press, it appears. Uh, what they basically are saying is that this uh, agency, which does not have any monitors in North Korea, but along with many other intelligence services and governments, think tanks, is looking at satellite imagery and does have access to some satellite military level satellite imagery that, uh, let's say, you know, uh, a think tank uh, like 38 North might not have. And they're doing a lot of sort of open source satellite mining. Uh, But what the IAEA is saying here is, look, in recent months, they've seen continued uh, construction at the Yongbyon power plant, which is a facility that uh, has been used to extract plutonium from nuclear reactors in North Korea. They say, you know, the, they had been watching construction there for many months, but that has continued since the meeting in Singapore. They also point to um, in further operation of laboratories, which have been used to reprocess the cores of North Korea's nuclear reactors. So add it all up, it doesn't appear North Korea's behavior has changed. Contrast that to what President Trump said in the Oval Office yesterday in an, in an interview with Reuters, Saying, look, I stopped the nuclear testing. I stopped the missile testing. Everybody's thrilled about this. So well, they're not testing they them anymore, but they're but they're continuing to build them. Yes, it does appear that there's a difference between you know sort of the activity that North Korea is doing in a little bit more of a subtle way that President Trump doesn't really concern himself with, and then the high level flashy stuff they appear to have suspended. But again, the reason well, it's, it's, it seems like you know internal. Trump is more concerned, and he talked uh, He talked about this with Tony Schwartz, and Tony Schwartz put it in the art of the deal. He's more concerned with how things look than what they really are. Appearances are everything to Trump. 
Yeah, I mean, this uh, these Oval Office comments, I think, just don't inspire much confidence in the you know sophistication of President Trump's analysis of North Korean nuclear behavior. So I was you know sort of troubled to see that he still seems to have really convinced himself not only that uh, the testing is makes the world safer, but that he was responsible for North Korea pausing those tests, which I'm not sure is really the case. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Luke Vargas, you can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Luke, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Yep. Good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Howard in Los Angeles. Hey, Howard, what's up? You know, there's one thing that I I rarely hear about the upcoming election, and that is uh, all the governorships. And they're really important for 2018 because their terms are going to extend past 2020 when we have the census. And so that's going to have an impact on the redistricting. Right. And and not only that, the, it's not just the governors, it's also the state houses and the state senates. Yeah. And that's yeah. why the Koch brothers have set up a nationwide network that is in every single state in the union to redistribute billionaire money and promote billionaire talking points and memes and to get Republicans elected to are sellouts to the billionaire class, uh, elected to state houses, state senates and to state governorships. You're absolutely right. The problem is, Howard, we're being drowned in billionaire money. Our political system, ever since Citizens United, really since Buckley versus Vallejo in 76, but, but in a huge way since 2010, October 2010 with Citizens United, we are drowning in billionaire money. I hope there's more focus on it. People realize that, you know, they're just looking at the 2018, but the implications beyond 2020, especially for those seats that are more than two years. Right. This is really why people need to turn out for these congressional and state elections. And we need to yeah. stop calling them midterms. They're congressional and state elections. And, and, you know, we need to pay attention to it. Every single member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election this November. Yeah. Every single one. A third of the Senate. And, and in most states, pretty much every member of the, of the House of Representatives in the states and probably most of their senators. So, Howard, excellent point. Thanks for the call and thanks for making it. Don watching Free Speech TV in Shoreline, Washington. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just saw the film uh, last night, the old uh, film uh, Seven Days in May with Burt Lancaster and Frederick March playing. Oh, wow. I saw that when I was a kid. I don't uh, remind me what it was about. It seems like it was World War Two. Burt Lancaster played a top military general and three others were plotting to overthrow the government. And near the end of the film, Frederick March played the president, reminded uh, Bert about, you know, the job of the president is to uphold and defend constitutional law. Whoa. I just wonder, what do you, I don't know what you think, uh, if we're headed towards spending of constitutional law and replacement with a martial law with uh, something that may happen, a, another attack on America, perceived attack. What do, what do you think about that? Oh, I think if 9-11 happened again, we would probably flip into fascism within, within a matter of months. Yeah, if not sooner than that. It concerns me tremendously, and Bush really laid the groundwork for it. I mean, he altered the nature of our laws and the interpretation of our laws in such a consequential way that in some ways it's almost as big a change as the change that we had after the Civil War when we went Mm -hmm. from a weak federal government to a strong federal government as a result of uh, changes that Lincoln made and then Andrew Johnson. I understand that the term Homeland Security is actually derived from the Russian acronym KGB, which in Russian speaks to that, like the security of mother communist Russia at that time. Actually, it comes from Rudolf Hess Mm -hmm. in the 1937, the big Nuremberg rally that uh, Lenny Reifenstahl made the movie Triumph of the Will about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Rudolf Hess got up and gave a speech and said, Danke, Führer, you know, thanks to our Führer, Heimat for alles die Deutschen die ganze Welt, you know, and, and forgive my terrible German, but uh, he said, the, Heimat, Heimat is the German word for homeland. And so okay. what he said in that speech was, thanks to our Führer, Germany now has become the homeland for German people all over the world. Okay. And, and then, you know, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, and then Hitler came up and gave his speech. And the Germans, the Nazis, at that point, right after that speech, started using the word Heimat, the word homeland, to describe a whole spectrum of stuff inside the German government. And that's why when George W. Bush came out with this Department of Homeland Security, I freaked out. You can you know, Google my name and the word homeland, and you'll find a whole series of articles that I wrote back in 2003, 2004 uh, about the German Nazi origin of that word and how the word was designed. I mean, this was an intentional thing that Hess did, we now know. And, and it wasn't just Hess. I mean, it was at the su- suggestion of Goebbels. And they had basically uh, tested this. Goebbels talked about this later, about how they had seen how the uh, Jews had a homeland, the much-wanted Israel. This, this idea of homeland was intrinsic to Jewish identity, to the Zionist identity anyway, and that they had to do the same thing for the German people. They had to, you know, it was all the whole blood and soil thing. And if you're going to have a homeland, you have to have essentially racial purity. I think this was the beginning of the whole race-based thing coming out of the Republicans. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? As far as getting down and out, yeah, I think everybody that's progressive is down and out right now. But I got my house. I'm 60, fairly free. I don't have a lot of money, but I get by. When I get down, you know what I do, Tom? I sit back and I go, you know what? There's probably 6 billion people on this planet that would trade places with me in a heartbeat. So quit being a whiner. 
Yeah, the old the old cliche, my mother used to say this all the time, count your blessings. I literally do that every day. I mean, I just go through in my mind, I do it in the context of a, of a prayer, you know, thank you for this, thank you for that, and I just go through all the things that I'm thankful for. My home, my family, my work, my my friends, my my kids, my, you know, I just, and, and I think that it's probably one of the best mental health exercises that I learned from my mother, and I've done most of my life, and it just, you know, Counting your blessings is really important. And, and well, it reminds you how much you have to be thankful for. Yes, and practicing gratitude. It's powerful, powerful stuff. Mark, thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that with us. And Margot in Vashon Island, Washington. Hey, Margot, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I wanted to ask you to talk about maintaining a balance between staying on top of the news and being aware and participating in issues and not falling into um, despair, horror, and gloom. We're up here in Washington State. We're surrounded by terrible smoke from the fires in British Columbia. It's been very upsetting watching our orcas, our southern resident orcas, are in bad trouble. And I stay on top of the news, and I, you know, I follow it. And a lot of people I know are really struggling with, uh, you know, depression and horror and despair. And I wonder if you could talk about maintaining a mentally healthy attitude in these times. Yeah. We're experiencing this here in Oregon, too. In fact, uh, Sean was saying she was having a hard time breathing today. The smoke is so bad here in Portland. The sun is just orange, uh, red. Mm -hmm. But I can only speak about what I do personally. I mean, I'm not going to play mental health counselor here. but No, but I, you, you have a good awareness of both psychological skills and political sure. skills. And well, there's a, there's a couple of things that I've done in my life. And one is I walk to work every morning, and I walk home every afternoon. I could do it in a way that's relatively short, but I take a path that's, you know, a little over a mile. It's just a 15-minute walk. But I try to talk to the trees and the plants and the sky, and I say my prayers on that walk. But the big part of it is just being grateful and being connected to nature. Even, you know, you can even do that in a city, you know, just walking around. And that kind of literally daily connection and practicing gratitude and compassion as I'm walking and I'm thinking about all the things I'm grateful for and all the gifts that I have in my life, that's something I do every single day and I think it's a really important part of my mental health. The other thing is screen addictions. I had reached the point where I was carrying my phone with me all the time. I've got a, you know, an iPhone and I was constantly pulling it out. If I was even just a little bit bored, I'd pull it out and hit the New York Times or the Washington Post or Huffington Post or whatever, you know, whatever app is in there that might deliver news to me so that I could mainline that stuff right into my brain. And I realized that if I wasn't looking at a screen on my laptop, I was looking at a screen on my phone and that I was suffering from screen addiction. And I think it's being driven by this hyper-reactiveness. We're on edge, essentially. You know, what did Trump do now? And the rationale is, okay, you know, I'd pick up the phone and go, okay, has Trump, you know, made a stupid tweet in the last 10 minutes? Has he started a war with North Korea yet? And so what I did, United Airlines, which I fly on typically, and so I've got many hundreds of thousands of miles accumulated on my United account over the years. They did a special a month ago where they were offering Apple watches for like 50, 60,000 frequent flyer miles. And so I got an Apple watch and uh, it has the telephone capability built into it. And I can see five headlines and one paragraph with each of the headlines. And I can check my email, I can do text messages. So I stopped carrying my phone. I don't have my phone with me right now. It's like a Dick Tracy thing, you know, if Louise calls me, I can answer it and it's like I'm talking to my wrist. 
But, you know, it's broken my screen addiction. I'm down to looking at my phone maybe in a half hour a day now. You know, I do it when I wake up in the morning. I read myself to sleep at night with books on my phone. And I'm reading more fiction, too. So those are the things I'm doing, Margo. I, do you have any little tricks that you've discovered are useful? Thank you. I, I appreciate all that. You know, I have been reading fiction, especially older fiction from other really difficult times in history. Yeah. And I've been uh, watching British detective shows and knitting and doing a lot of arts and crafts. Yes. Yeah. And Louise and I have gotten really pretty, helpful. pretty uh, religious about watching, you know, a, a TV show every night just to kind of, it's like, you know, a palate cleanser. The show that we've the new one that we just discovered is a BBC, or is, I don't know if it's BBC or it's Canadian Broadcasting or where it came from, but it takes place in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, and uh, it's called Republic of Doyle. It's just a private detective show uh, with a kind of quirky character. He's kind of like the, the character in Psych. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it takes it takes our head out of it for a minute. So uh, Exactly. Yeah. We've been watching Shetland. <laughs> Yeah. Deal. yeah. Islands. So, I, you know, I think that all these things, you know, we all we all find our own ways and, and maybe people will call with suggestions about how they've they've found to maintain their mental health. But I think, you know, maintaining a balance, a, a spiritual, emotional and input information input balance is a really good and useful thing. And those are the techniques that I've employed to do that. And I have to immerse myself in this stuff. I mean, I, I talk about it three hours a day on the radio every day and then I write about it as well. But still, I think it's possible to have, you know, a balanced diet of, of media. Thanks, Margo. That was a great question. And a fascinating issue, I suppose, would be the, you know, the challenge for all of us. How do we maintain our balance in these times of Trump insanity? I want to refer you to a great article in the Washington Post today. It was actually on the 17th this came out. I just discovered it today, I guess. And it's titled, The Uncelebrity President. Jimmy Carter shuns riches, lives modestly in his Georgia home. Jimmy Carter is almost 94 years old. His wife is 91. The reporter went down to see what their life was like. This particular night, they had gone to their friend Jill Stuckey's house, one of their neighbors. And uh, reading from the article, dinner at their friend Jill Stuckey's house with plastic solo cups of ice water and one glass each of bargain brand Chardonnay, then the half mile walk home to the ranch house they built in 1961. The 39th president of the United States lives modestly, a sharp contrast to his successors who have left the White House to embrace power of another kind, wealth. Even those who didn't start out rich, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, have made tens of millions of dollars in the private sector opportunities that flow so easily to ex-presidents. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. I did not realize this, that the first president of the United States to take advantage of all these high-dollar opportunities, uh, ways to exploit the fact that you were president of the United States for profit, for income, the first president to do that was Gerald Ford in my lifetime. This was, you know, 1976 to 1980, and Gerald Ford was the first president after he retired to start giving high-priced speeches and renting himself out as a board member, uh, you know, for for-profit corporations and things like that, and getting paid very handsomely for it. When the reporter asked Jimmy Carter, this is uh, Marianne Golan, uh, the reporter asked Jimmy Carter, how come you're not rich? He said, it's just never been my ambition to be rich, verbatim quote. When he came back from Washington, D.C. as ex-president, he was 56 years old. His peanut farm was a million dollars in debt because he had put it in a blind trust during his presidency. He wasn't running it himself. It had just fallen apart. And he had to sell it. He had to sell off his peanut business. Rosalind, 
uh, sitting beside him, said, we thought we were going to lose everything. But Jimmy Carter then made the decision that his income was not going to come from exploiting his presidency, that it was going to come from his writing. And, and, and what he was going to write about was his faith, his life, his career, women's rights, aging, fishing, woodworking. He even wrote a children's book with his daughter, Amy Carter. His book income, and between his book income and his $210,000 a year pension as a former president, uh, they note the Carters live comfortably. Carter is the only president in the modern era to return full-time to the house he lived in before he entered politics. A two-bedroom ranch assessed at $167,000. That's less valuable than the armored Secret Service vehicles parked outside. Carter says, I'm a great admirer of Harry Truman. He's my favorite president, and I really try to emulate him. Uh, he set an example I thought was admirable. Truman also retired to his hometown. In that case, it was Independence, Missouri. And uh, Jimmy Carter, he's now cancer-free. He's the second president ever to reach 94 years old. He's sharp, funny, reflective. The Carters walk every day off and down Church Street, the main drag through planes, as they have been doing since the 1920s. The 1920s. So, you know, somebody called earlier and said, you know, how do you keep yourself sane in these days? I look at Jimmy Carter. I mean, he's keeping himself sane and he's doing a great job of it. And, and you think about, you know, Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, what he had to say to us. This was in 1979. It was the year before uh, Ronald Reagan cut a deal. It was just before Ronald Reagan cut this deal with the Ayatollahs to hold, to have them, the Iranians, hold the hostages for a whole year until the election in November of 1980 to hold those Americans hostage to damage the Carter presidency so that Reagan could win the White House, which is exactly what Reagan did. Reagan created, committed the same kind of treason in 1980 that Richard Nixon committed in 1968 when he cut a deal with the South Vietnamese and said, I'll make you rich if you will not do the peace talks with Lyndon Johnson. LBJ actually had negotiated in August of 1968 peace with North Vietnam. He had worked it all out. Well, this is what LBJ had to say. LBJ is talking to Everett Dirksen, the Republican senator from Illinois, who was the most powerful or the second most powerful senator. Actually, I think he was the most powerful senator. I was thinking Barry Goldwater might have been the most powerful, but I'm not sure Barry Goldwater was even still in the Senate at this point. This was 1968, and LBJ calls up Everett Dirksen, the, the, the godfather of the Republican Party, and says, we know what Richard Nixon's doing. He is telling them, don't do a deal with LBJ. You know, don't end the Vietnam War. Let me end it. And by hurting LBJ this way, by not ending the war, I'll get elected president and I'll make you rich. And this is LBJ. This is that conversation that they had. Here's the latest, latest uh, information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just, they just talked to the boss in New Mexico. Uh -huh. And that he says that you must hold out. Just hold on until after the election. We know what Chew is saying to them out there. Yeah. We're pretty well informed on both ends. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. This is treason. I know. The leading Republican in America, and neither one of them, I mean, they both went to their graves hiding the secret that Richard Nixon committed treason to become president in 1968. Similarly, Reagan committed treason in 1980. 
And many of the people around him went to their graves without releasing that information. Barbara Honiger chronicles it in her book, October Surprise, and, and as had Gary Sick and a number of other people. But when you think of the perfidy, the obscene embrace of dirty tricks by the Reagan campaign, by the Nixon campaign, by the George Bush senior campaign, the Willie Horton ads and all that stuff with Paul Manafort's group and Lee Atwater, who worked for Paul Manafort back then to scare people about black people, to scare the rest of white America about that. And then you contrast that with the one guy who has been president in my lifetime who was extraordinarily moral, extraordinarily honest, and always put the interests of the United States first. The more I look at Jimmy Carter's presidency, the more I'm convinced that Jimmy Carter was the greatest president of my lifetime. Here's what he had to say about energy. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. And then he continues. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. Now, you go back to this Washington Post article. I have always told the truth, Jimmy Carter tells the reporter. She writes, Carter has been notably quiet about President Trump, but on this night, two years into Trump's term, he's not holding back. I think he's a disaster, Carter says, in human rights and taking care of people and treating people equal. Rosalind adds, the worst is that he's not telling the truth, and that just hurts everything. Carter says his father taught him that truthfulness matters. He said that was reinforced at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he said students are expelled for telling even the smallest lie. Carter said, I think there's been an attitude of ignorance toward the truth by President Trump. He adds the Citizens United decision, quote, has changed our political system from a democracy to an oligarchy. Money is now preeminent. I mean, it's just gone to hell now. When he asked if the nation will return to ethical and moral values and will return to what's right and what's wrong and what's decent and what's indecent and what's truthful and what's lies, Carter says, I doubt if it happens in my lifetime. This is so sad. I remember Jim, our video guy, was so excited. He went down to Plains, Georgia, and this was back when we were in Washington, D.C., and met Jimmy Carter and met Rosalind and went to Bible study with them in their church. I mean, just <laughs> amazing stuff. So I just wanted to remember Jimmy Carter while he's still alive and honor this extraordinary man and try to hold up an honest politician as a role model for obviously the Democratic Party, but also for America. I think we, we all get so, uh, so upset by the lies and, and the perfidy coming out of the White House. Um, we forget how good and how noble it has been and can be again. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I truly believe that change is happening right in front of us. Obviously some bad changes, but I think some really good changes too. And that keeps me going. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom, if I could just pick up on these uh, fires. <laughs> I wish I could uh, send some of this smoke 
around the country for people to enjoy. Well, now that it's in the jet stream, I suspect that all across the country, at least the northern half of the country, people are going to start seeing red skies, you know, red sky in the morning, red sky at night, and maybe they'll put two and two together. The problem is uh, they'll say, oh, what beautiful sunsets, and now right. realize that, yeah, it's, yeah. The, we have uh, air, air quality warning here today and yesterday. We do here, too. In the Seattle area, and you can tell my voice, my eyes are burning, and, and uh, I just went out for my morning walk, but you said that 1.9 million acres are burning right now. I, I did some quick calculations because I've been thinking about this. That is uh, almost 3,000 square miles, which is one and a half times the size of the state of Delaware. Wow. Now, I keep hearing them talk about, the, the, the right-wingers talk about, well, the problem here is it's not global warming. It's poor forestry management, and we need to be thinning out the forests. So all of our natural forest lands should be, should be treated like farm forest lands, you know, take out all the habitats and all that. And I thought, okay, well, let's, let's assume that was true. How much forest land are we talking about? And when you start looking at the sheer area of the natural forest lands, there's not even enough timber industry to even make a dent in it. Now, I mean, 3,000, Yellowstone Park alone is 3,500 square miles. Wow. But Ryan Zinke is looking at all that, thinking, how, look at how much profit could be made if we just made all these public lands private. Right. So it's just, it's just another phony baloney excuse to, to get the word global warming out of the conversation. Paul, thanks for the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We've got to get active. Make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure the Republicans haven't stripped your voter registration. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.